podcast this week, we explore the days of the bird summer as Simon Bird, ex in betweener, talks about his directorial debut, Days of the Bagnold Summer. Plus, all usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that is expected to see John Boyega in a lot of films over the next few years. And if we don't, there'll be hell to pay. Hello, Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week, unlike last week, where the fourth rotating chair was was empty. There was nobody in it. I am joined by three colleagues of such lethal cunning. Oh, yes. Geek Queen, Helen O'Hara. Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yes. Good. That is excellent. Uh, James Dyer is also here, which, technically speaking, I'm contractually obliged to say, is nice, I guess. How are you, Jimbo? I am fine, thank you, Christopher. It is a thrill and a joy, as ever, to be in your virtual presence. <laughs> And and I'm delighted to confirm that, unlike last week, the fourth rotating chair has a pair of buttocks firmly welded to it. Which means that the fact section is back, folks. That's right, gird your loins, it's going to happen, oh yes. And the occupant of that fourth chair, back for some more, is Amon Warman. I have to say, I'm impressed with you. Really? How come? Uh, the last two conversations we've had, this two virtual conversations we've had, you're actually wearing really good shirts. I'm glad that I finally started to rub off on you. It's about time. Well done. Oh, my word. You've been rubbing off on Chris? Oh, my goodness. Let's save the rubbing off conversations for a private chat, someone, shall we? You had to make it work. Yeah, okay, fair enough. I'm trying but, to compliment you, know, you here. Making it weird is where I live. Anyway, what are you wearing today, Amon? It's a kind of... I don't know how to describe it. Yeah, I've... I've I haven't worn this on a podcast before. It's like a ringer tee. Virtual or otherwise. What is it? It's, um, this is the technical term, of course, but it's a blue thing with a white thing on it. Isn't it what we called a ringer tee in the 90s? A what? As in they had rings around the neck and around the arms. It's quite ecclesiastical. Yeah. Um. (laughs) Are you taking holy orders, Amon? Is that what this is? You are the theology grad, James. (laughs) Jim, but what are you wearing? I beg your pardon. Oh my gosh. Um, Chris, again, this is a conversation for after the podcast, surely. Uh, I'm wearing a cheeky little silk under thing that uh, chafes ever so slightly, but it's otherwise quite delightful. Uh, no, I'm wearing my, my customary black T-shirt and jeans. <laughs> Hells Bells, I realise that this is uh, an improper question to ask a lady, but um, what are you wearing? <laughs> I'm wearing a jumper that says five by five. Of course, of course. It's a Buffy reference. Uh, is that a reference to the dropship approach in Aliens? Uh, I mean, I thought it was a reference to Buffy, but it can be both. I don't mind. <laughs> in case people give a shit what I am wearing, uh, and Amon has already complimented it, uh, you can't get these anymore. I'm really, really sad about this. The The company that made this t-shirt, Dark Bunny Tees, is no longer with us. Great, great shame. They also made the Just One More Thing Mark Ruffalo as Columbo t-shirt that I also adore uh, as well. But this t-shirt is, um, it says Boyega mm-hmm. on the front, but in the in the same font, in the same logo as Basinga from t-shirts made famous by the Big Bang Theory. And I'm wearing it in tribute to John Boyega uh, because... He went above and beyond. I mean, he's been going above and beyond for a while, obviously, of course. But he went above and beyond, especially this week, in uh, the protest at Hyde Park, standing up for what he believes in, standing up for what is right. And so I'm wearing this as a little tribute to John Boyega. And, and this is a good place to start because it has been a hell of a week. And, and yes, my intention is to bring you guys a 
regular episode of the Empire Podcast, or as close to a regular episode of the Empire Podcast as we can possibly manage. And we will get there. We will get you. You're going to have film-related fun coming out of your ears very, very soon. Um, but the events that have unfolded this week in America, the global protests against police brutality and institutional racism that have resulted from the shocking death of George Floyd um, absolutely warrant discussion. And I realise, I am fully aware that you don't come to the Empire Podcast for politics. You come to it for film chat and film nonsense. And I realise that there are a million pods that are better placed to discuss this. But we're all human beings here, and this is important. And so we just want to discuss this. And um, Amon, I'm going to start with you. It has been a hell of a week. Yeah. I guess... I guess I'll begin with this. There's when growing up as a black person, as a black person, there's an implicit knowledge you have that there are people in the world who would like nothing more than to see you dead because of the color of your skin. That's just an implicit thing that you know. And I've had sort of multiple conversations with my sister, not only sort of this week, but um, sort of in my past of like, you know, if you get into any sort of situation, which might look, you know, get crazy, you know, make sure that you immediately start filming with your phone. That sort of conversation. It's just a thing which happens. Um, and every now and then you get explicit reminders of that fact that people want to see you dead. And um, this happened sort of obviously many times before. I think part of why the reaction to this has been so loud and widespread um, is because it was a double whammy. It was the Amy Cooper incident, uh, which happened a couple of days before the George Floyd death. And, you know, it would take something extreme for people to take to the streets and, and protest despite the pandemic going on. That was definitely that. Um, it's also worth noting, I think, that uh, part of the reason why the riots in the US are happening is because Floyd, uh, with Floyd's mother, the people who... Uh, all, all of the people who did that weren't immediately brought to justice. Um, and it's the same deal for the deaths of many black people. They've now thankfully been charged, but that is created that it took several days and riots to make that happen. If you got enough info to fire them on the spot, which is what happened, then surely you have enough info to arrest them on the spot as well. Um, but with everything that's happening, um, you know, to quote Obama from last night, it's very good to uh, hear from him. Um, I am encouraged by the fact that this feels different in terms of the reaction. Again, it's louder and more widespread than it ever has been before. Um, I think, again, another part, another reason for that is because of the pandemic that we're currently going through. A lot of people don't have their jobs to occupy them so they can sort of put more energy into this. Um, but this is now, it's about more than just doing a solitary Black Lives Matter post. This is, has to go beyond aesthetic activism now. Um, we need to be applying the same energy all year round. This isn't just about black people getting killed in the US. This is a global issue. It's about institutions. It's about workplaces. It's about day-to-day -day interactions. People need to educate themselves um, and don't rely on your black friends. Do the work, read the books, watch the films. The time has come for active resistance now. And I think if we do that, then maybe we can finally start to break this cycle. 
I think that's what's been really encouraging about the past week is people recommending, consistently recommending books, recommending petitions to sign, recommending charities and organizations to make donations to, recommending positive actions and putting the onus on us to do something um, beyond beyond the protests, although those are important. It, it's it's about like real and lasting change, as you say. Um, and uh, and yeah, so that's that's been what's been really encouraging um, it's also just been just encouraging to see so many people standing up and speaking out and uh, and you just hope that it isn't just performative it isn't just putting a black square on instagram it's it's really changing the way they think and the way they act i hope yeah indeed i mean this week does feel very very different what's happening in the world right now feels very different and feels vital and urgent and important it feels like real change could be around the corner, um, but we have to be ready to affect that change ourselves. You know, and regular listeners to the podcast will know that my wife, Fala, is uh, a black woman. And I, I realize that that sounds very much like some of my best wives are black, and I, I totally get that. But over the years, obviously, Fala and I have had many, many conversations about racism and about how she feels. And I've seen racism that she suffers firsthand. And I've seen this week how it has hugely affected her but i don't think i've ever really done enough and so it is up to us to get out there to to educate ourselves to sign petitions to make donations if we can of course and to stand up for what is right because black lives matter and if that phrase offends you if you are one of the sorry chris all lives matter actually i think you'll find type of people well then I maybe this podcast isn't for you and there's a podcast down the street that would be much more to your liking mm. you know and I hope this isn't I, it's up to us to prove that this isn't empty rhetoric but watching John Boyega watching the passion with which he protested and you know was was incredible and you know, and, and hearing him say things like I, I'm he doesn't think he's going to have a career after this was astonishing and a damning indictment of Hollywood if if someone can be mm-hmm. sidelined just for speaking up, just for standing up for what they believe in, then that's a shocking indictment of Hollywood. But thankfully, people like Jordan Peele and Craig Mazin rallied around him on Twitter and said, you have a job with us anytime you want. And so that is good to see. Yeah, uh, I was very happy to see John Boyega use his platform like that. I, you know, mm. he tweeted like last week, I hate racists, and there was a backlash to that. I don't know what world we're living in where that statement is not met with universal agreement. You think you're um, on fairly safe ground. Like, I hate racists, I hate Nazis. These feel like terms that are not controversial. They're really not. The fact that we even have to think about this school of thought that somebody, some person's career is on the line because of saying something like that, it angers me. Um but um, yeah, I, I, I was looking at Twitter yesterday as well, and I saw everyone from Matthew Cherry to Ryan Johnson to J.J. Abrams uh, to Jordan Peele, as you say, and more um, tweet their support of John Biega. We should also mention that Kiki Palmer as well mm-hmm. uh, really you know, put her money where her mouth, was, mouth is as well and, um, and had a great speech. And um, people should rally around her as well and make sure that she too also has a long and prosperous career uh, in the future. Yeah. 
it has been a real thing in the past, like, you know, back in the civil rights era, it was an absolutely true thing. People lost their careers by speaking out, by doing the right thing. Um, black and white, but mostly black, but, and most of them, you know, were, were struggling for good roles already. But it was, it was absolutely treated as something you cannot do and you cannot say and you cannot speak out. Um, and, I hope that it's different this time. I hope that, that the filmmakers do the right thing and, and, and hire these people. And I hope that we all try to do the right thing. We're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to fail at times, but we have to keep trying to do the right thing. Um, there are so many causes out there that you can donate to if you have the money going. And I know it's a difficult time. People like Liberty um, in the UK, uh, people like the Stephen Lawrence Trust do magnificent work, uh, Black, Ma Black Lives Matter UK. There's, there's huge numbers. If you just look for anti-racism UK on Twitter right now, you will find the links to the, to the organizations that you, you can donate to. If you look up things like, um, you can either look at my Twitter. I have a couple of links there and things I've retweeted, but things like the GCSE petition, if you can't give money, sign the petition to change the GCSE syllabus in this country. So people learn at school what role we played in making this world more racist because the British played an enormous role in making the world racist. Mm. That is such an important point. And someone, I was reading something and it never even occurred to me that we do, do we do the middle ages, we do the industrial resolution, revolution, we do a few kings, we skip over all the racist stuff and then we go to like World War Two. And it's and the same in America, isn't it? Like a lot of like, while they cover slavery, they cut out huge swaths of important information in there. And as we educate children, the history syllabus is your first contact with you know, the history of the society you live in. And to to gloss over the nasty parts of imperialism in British education is fucking ridiculous, because otherwise how can you learn from your mistakes if you don't even made them? It's a, it's a massive disservice to the modern world. It, absolutely. It's it's outrageous. Um, and you, I mean, it leaves us all having to do this reading on our own now because we were never taught this stuff and it should absolutely be taught from a really young age. And, you know, as a few people on Twitter have been saying today, you may think that your children are too young to talk to about racism, um, but black children are not too young to experience racism. So they're in a privileged position if you're having to talk to them in a, in a calm and considerate and, and helpful and supportive way about the reality of this. So so it's kind of a count your blessings kind of situation if, if that's your biggest worry in, in all of this. But, but we have to change. It's not okay. It's the 21st century. I know the world is on fire in multiple ways right now. Um, but maybe this is something good that can come out of the shit show that is 2020. Maybe we can all start trying a little bit harder on this stuff. No, a lot harder. Fuck it. A lot harder. Yes, indeed. And uh, Jimbo, Amon, do you have any other uh, things to recommend? Any other uh, kind of charities, places people can go, places people can donate? Uh, well, if you go on empireonline.com, you'll see an article I did Never with Ben. <laughs> you'll see an article I did with uh, Ben Travis about uh, 14 black films mm. by uh, black filmmakers you can watch right now at the end of that article there's a number of places uh, where you can donate uh, so i highly recommend yeah. checking that out yeah it's got donations color of change community justice exchange it's got petitions on there as well to be signed and and sort of informational resources as well uh, not just the film recommendations but yeah it's a really good piece you guys did a great job on thank that. you now let's get into the podcast proper uh, and we're going to start with the the film fact section I don't have a funny name for it this week some would say I haven't uh, haven't had a funny name for it at any point oh. so <laughs> thanks a bunch um, so instead I'm going to go into my okay so this is the incredibly 
strange people who stopped facting and became mixed up zombies. There you go. How about that? That's what this week's is called. Uh, and um, let me see. I'm going to start with I'm going to start with Jimbo this week. He usually needs a bit of runway for his facts. Now, Jimbo, this cannot be a 15 minute monologue. All right. <laughs> Well, I feel it's always important to top yourself. I'm aiming for a cool half Listen, hour. Listen, after you spoke for half an hour, it's important for us all to top ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to keep this one really, really short and to the point. You'll be very pleased to me. So uh, this one was, uh, I was directed towards this fact by David Heslop on Twitter, who who wondered if I knew it and pointed me towards it. So he, uh, he tipped me this, off. man. Uh, no, I'm not reading out his like thing. He just he's pointed me in the right direction. He was my guide, my Sherpa, my spiritual <laughs> consigliere, if you will. You're Tom Hagen. Indeed, that he's a wartime consigliere. That's what I'm telling you. Uh, so anyway, so what I want to talk about this week, I want to talk about Don Amici. As you will all know, Don Amici was, of course, a legend of the 30s and 40s. Although people today, I guess, mostly know him for Cocoon and Trading Places, Damn You, Mortimer Duke. But in 1938, Don Amici starred in a film which told the story of the inventor of the telephone, Alexander Graham Bell. It was, you may be surprised to hear, titled The Story of Alexander Graham Bell. It's quite on the nose. <laughs> Henry Fonda was in it as well. So this film came out... It was seen by a lot of people. Now, bear in mind, the telephone was invented in, I want to say, the 1870s. So it wasn't like it was a new fangled gizmo by the time this film came out in the late 30s. Gizmo. However, <laughs> yes, thank you, Chris. <laughs> However, Hi. telephones were not commonplace. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Now, anyway, so the telephone, the telephone was not widespread, was not widespread in the late 30s. Not everyone had a telephone, but it, so it wasn't exactly commonplace. So this film about Alexander Graham Bell stuck in people's heads. So much so that after the film came out, Don Amici's performance became incredibly heavily associated with the telephone, leading to, and this is absolutely true, his last name becoming a slang term for phones during the years afterwards and for most of the 1940s. So in the 1940s, you're calling your mum, best pick up the Amici and give her a holler. <laughs> Absolutely true. What was that, Chris? Someone just tried to sell me PPI over the Amici. Oh, that's a shame. Uh, so this was the thing that happened. It was the Amici. And if that had carried on, we could now be calling each other on our mobile Amicis, you know, hang up the Amici. Uh, that could be a thing. Unfortunately, while it did take off, it did not stick. So it did, in fact, revert back over time to telephone, which was, of course, abbreviated to phone, and is now just device you text people on, but don't actually call with unless you're some kind of sociopath uh and uh and that is my fact the amici that was the short version <laughs> hey that's i mean what that was like three minutes that was pretty fucking concise and it would have been a lot Punchy. shorter without without gizmo <laughs> in fairness yes i did interrupt and that's a decent fact I will say that's a decent fact. It is one I did Thank not you. know. In case people, Thank you, David. In Heslop. case people do not know what this section is, by the way, I just assume that everyone listens to the podcast. First time listeners, um, this is a section in which three colleagues of such lethal cunning bring me facts about movies and hopefully I won't know them and then I anoint a winner every week. Uh, Amon has done this once before. I have. He failed to win <laughs> this time. What have you got for me, Mr. Warman? All right, so... This uh, is a story of how Spike Lee got additional funding from Malcolm X um, because he ran out of money. Um, they, they had planned to finish shooting in South Africa and Egypt, but Warner Brothers told Spike that he had to shoot on the Jersey Shore instead of Egypt. 
<laughs> Understandably, Spike did not want to do that. Um, Warner Bros. also wanted to try and make him to make a two-hour cut of the film to just to try and cut costs everywhere. Spike didn't want to cave into that either. Uh, and around that time, a completion bond company had assumed control of the film and had uh, fired all of Spike Lee's sort of editors, his post-production team, everybody. Um, and Spike didn't have any money himself because the million dollars he was being paid for the film was going into the film. So he had no money. Uh, so he decided to turn to some of his prominent black friends to help get the movie funded. Uh, among the people who helped out were Tracy Chapman, Janet Jackson, Oprah, Prince. Now, the last two people he called were basketball players. One of them was called Irvin Magic Johnson, one of the 50 greatest players of all time. And the other person was a guy called Michael Jeffrey Jordan, or as I like to call him, the GOAT. Jeffrey. Uh, <laughs> watch the last dance on Netflix now for irrefutable evidence of this fact. Um, but Spike calls uh, Magic Johnson and Magic Johnson donates. And then he calls Michael Jordan. Now, if you've watched The Last Dance or if you know anything about Michael Jordan, you will know that he is the most competitive sentient being to ever walk the face of the earth. <laughs> um, so when Spike Lee called Michael Jordan, he let slip how much Magic Johnson paid <laughs> for, to help him out with Malcolm X. And obviously, Michael Jordan, not wanting to lose at anything, uh, gave him a big fat check for Malcolm X. And that was the check that sort of sealed the deal that allowed him to rehire all his staff uh, so that he could finish Malcolm X the way he wanted to, to finish it. Uh, and then, would you, wouldn't you know, after all of that happened and it was announced that all these people had helped, Warner Brothers decided to help fund the film again anyway. What happened to Michael Johnson and Michael Jordan's money? Did they go into but, the film as uh, well? Yeah, no, yeah. All, the way, all, all went into the film. All went into the film. How much mm. was it? How much, yeah. did they, how much did they pay? Do you know? I did not, I did not know that. I did not know that part. But I thought that was still... The important thing is Michael Jordan paid more than Magic Johnson. That's the important <laughs> yes. thing to remember. Like one dollar. He went full Don Amici and, played, and paid one dollar. Uh, okay, this is interesting. Uh, you know, if you'd, had the, if you'd had those figures, it could have stood you in good oh, stead. But, uh, oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, and imagine that was a short version. Hell's Bells. <laughs> okay, this is a slightly longer one than my usual, but only slightly. Oh, um, Christ. It was the night of August 8th, 1996. Titanic was on its final bit of shooting in Nova Scotia. So Nova Scotia was the kind of framing device scenes with the modern day exploration of the wreck with Bill Paxton and Susie Amos and all the rest. And the day before, a crew member had gotten in an argument with the caterer and the crew member had been in the wrong and the crew member had been fired. But the crew member had a grudge against the caterer. This is important to remember because that night the crew broke for crew lunch um, about halfway through the shooting day, which was a night shoot, so it was about midnight lunch. And the catering company brought out that day's special chowder. Now, the, ex the precise nature of the chowder is lost to history. Um, Cameron <laughs> remembers it being a muscle chowder. Bill Paxton said it was a, a clam chowder. The Halifax police report, which was prepared after the incident I'm about to describe, um, said it was lobster. So it may have had all three. Who knows? The important <laughs> thing is that it also had PCP in it as in angel wow. dust, right? Because um, apparently the disgruntled crew member, we think they were never found, um, 
put something in the chowder in order to try and get back at the caterer with whom they had had a grudge. The result was that about 60 people who had the fish for dinner um, started to go a little bit do lally. Now, Cameron started feeling woozy and realized he didn't know his way off his own set and immediately thought that maybe there was some kind of, you know, just naturally occurring toxin in the fish. You know, you, you sometimes get that with, with shellfish. So he made himself throw up and was spared the worst of it. Um, everybody else was quickly taken to hospital. By the way, Susie Amos also didn't have the chowder, so she's got to be a suspect. Apparently, she's Wait a second here. I'm, this I'm is kidding, very, I'm kidding. This is very Gus Fring killing Don Eladio. This is, what's going on here? And Gloria Stewart, who played the, the elderly Rose, she had dinner elsewhere that night, so she's got to be a suspect as well. Anyway, um, everybody else pretty much had the, <laughs> the chowder. Um, and they all basically started acting completely crazy. People were throwing up, people were singing, people were laughing and, and, and staring into the middle distance. They all got taken to hospital and they were all put in sort of those individually curtained little treatment rooms, you know, um, but none of them wanted to stay there because by this point they were high as a kite. Um, and they ended up having a conga line around the hospital and wheelchair races. Um, his history suggests that the conga line was led by cinematographer Caleb Deschanel. He has not commented on that, so we can't say that for sure. But somebody has got to have led the line, so who knows? Um, but yes, so basically the entire cast and crew of Titanic were poisoned with PCP. Um, and uh, that's that's what happened. The caterer was fired, so if the crew member did do it in an effort to get back at the caterer, job well done. But I mean, it was the last <laughs> night of the shoot anyway, so, you know. Maybe that wasn't so bad, but it did have like a lasting effect. Apparently, Bill Paxton didn't feel like himself for weeks afterwards. It was really quite nasty. Um, but in the meantime, there was conga. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, mm. you know this fact. Surely you know this fact. No, I don't think I, I do. Uh, I don't think I, I do. See, I'm, I'm. I thought that was a very well known fact. Uh, but maybe it's because I'm a Cameron stan. I've spoken to him about this, actually. Mm. He, he pointed out that it was by no means the worst thing that happened on the set of Titanic. Well, no. <laughs> so um, <laughs> he was like, yeah, that was that was a good day. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, it is. Interesting. Yeah, they never they never proved who it was. They never found it. But I, I, love, the, I love the fact that one night while making that film, they were all just fucking tripping balls. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that's, that's genuinely, genuinely hilarious. Uh, yeah, Helen uh, texted me the, 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 this morning at 11 o'clock going, before I research a backup fact, do you know the internet? <laughs> at the Titanic PCP story and I replied the what now and she went never mind <laughs> hang on hang on hang on ex parte discussion with the judge disqualification instant disqualification contempt of court disbarment get out no, the question is does he know know the fact I didn't you can't do that that's part of the competition Why? you can't discuss it oh, well, he didn't know the fact though so it's fine I put forward a motion for instant disqualification and disbarment of Helen O'Hara. That's fine. Does that mean if disbarment? Absolutely. Bring it on. Disbarment from playing this game ever again. You've got, you got Helen breaking the rules. you got James, you know, calling on other people to sort of, you know, uh, to give him uh -huh. facts and then also breaking the rules. I'm the only one not breaking the rules. So by default, hey, it should be me. You didn't do the research or bring the whole truth with you. Oh, you well, made up half the facts. The numbers are never out there for something like that. I've got some sympathy 
happy with Amon for that. There's they never release those figures. I don't know. They just don't. I went all the way back to the 1930s. I put in the legwork. I mean, you went to Wikipedia or something, didn't you? Come on. <laughs> I mean, no, but it was a website, sure. <laughs> Let me just call someone very quickly on my uh, Michi and I will discuss this <laughs> a little bit further with them. This this feels like it needs uh, it, it warrants further investigation. Um I would say in, in a strange way, Helen skimmed with transgressing the rules uh, a little bit. Jimbo, <laughs> once again, has received assistance from an outside source. And Amon, you're absolutely right. Listen, man, if you had got, if you had said to me, Magic Johnson paid $500,000 and Michael Jordan paid $500,000 and one cent, then, <laughs> you know, that's the sort of detail I need from this. So I think each of the three of you have been incompetent to a degree Yay. that makes me comfortable with giving you each a point this week well done everybody Yay. everybody wins Yay, there we go <laughs> absolutely well done let's just update the scoreboard here and see who's winning and it is still one of the three people involved in the competition who is in front so that's that is fantastic i hope that listen the the, the main point of this section is not just to enrich me but to enrich the listener at home and i spoke to him and he feels very enriched by this and uh, so we're going to carry on with it <laughs> next week all right so there you go that is the film fact section well done, everybody. Uh, take a break. Don't, because we have something else to talk about. And that is listener questions. We have two this week. And the first one comes from at Avid Film Watcher. And this one could set the cat amongst the pigeons. How many movies do you guys watch a year? What's your record? And do you guys one-up each other about it? I can immediately discount myself, essentially, by saying I don't count this shit. I don't keep a list. I don't mm -mm. make records. I mean, I, I admire those who do, the people who have this these incredible lists of everything they've ever watched. I mean... Not only Kim Newman, who has literally filing cabinets full of notes on every film he's ever seen. Um, that's an extreme case. It's amazing. <laughs> it's absolutely amazing, but it's an extreme case. But even the people who set themselves targets of watching X number of a certain type of film per year, I admire you enormously. I am in no way as organized as you are. Um, <laughs> so I would probably watch three or four new movies every week um, and then endless rewatches of stuff that I already know I like. Mm -hmm. So it's probably in the region of 200-ish new movies a year, which I realize is probably below par um, by some film critic standards, but it's also a, an estimate. And also, I don't want to get into dick measuring contests about how many films that we all watch. No, because I would lose. Time. I would lose any, any dick measuring contest. I mean, I win. I would win any dick measuring contest. Oh, shit. Damn it. You do get a lot of uh, tracked twats on the internet who have their little tracked lists of stuff mm. and it's oh I've seen this this week and then this this week it's ever growing list of films and it does get a little bit competitive I am the first to admit that not enough would be my answer to this but uh, <laughs> I try and watch at least you know a couple of films for the podcast if I can but that doesn't even always work um, I make up for it though because I have to watch an absolutely heroic amount of television every week <laughs> for Chris pilot out <laughs> Pilot is a demanding mistress, that's all I can say. Uh, so I have to watch many, many, many hours each week of TV because it never fucking ends. It, it doesn't, um, does it? So 
It doesn't end. It's, uh, honestly, and look, I am the first to admit, we can talk about fucking privilege. Like, my first world problem is I have to watch too many films and TV, <laughs> too, much, too much TV and too many films for my job, which I am paid to do. Oh, and this but week you've been, you've been a- adding a game into the mix. I've, oh, I've been playing a game that everyone wants to play. Oh, I got a preview copy. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> yes. Okay. We've established I am the worst, and I'm absolutely prepared to own that. Uh, but it is, but sometimes it can get quite grueling. Like, you know, because, like, you, you, as we've often said, like, if you review uh, a film like worst case scenario realistically you have to watch a bad film for what an hour and a half two hours something like that when you're reading a bad tv show it can be sort of 10 15 mm. you know more hours of it like it's pretty fucking it's a lot it is a lot mm. um so yes I, I i neither sleep nor eat nor go outside nor speak to <laughs> other humans i simply absorb television i i'm largely like helen uh in this regard i think i tend to watch about three to four new movies a week. And then when you add that to, you know, we, I'm, I'm, I'm quite, I'm, I'm, I'm a regular at the London Film Festival every year. And, and that's a whole bunch of films in all mm. at once. So when yeah. you add all of that, uh, it's probably to 250 plus, I'd say 250 to 300 films a, a year. Um, okay. But yeah, I, I know people who track it and who, know watch a far higher number than me and i'm just like mm, yeah. where do you mm. find the time and i like i like my tv too not, not as much as james does in terms of the amount of stuff that he watches but i try and fit that in as well and it's just mm. like yeah um it's a real time mm. suck yeah yeah it, it, it is there is a lot of media these days yeah uh, well. do you i mean i do keep a list of sorts which it, but it's, it becomes less a fil- a list of films i've seen and more a list of films that i should have seen and didn't so it'll be like that i do have a i have a thing on my phone an ongoing list of stuff that i needed to see and wanted to see and for one reason or another didn't get to see and it's trying to stay on top of that mm-hmm. is a source of eternal stress for me yeah. so it's any free moment i've got where i'm not either playing a game that everyone wants to play or <laughs> you know watching a tv show that everyone wants to see and can't then i have to try and watch one yeah. of those I feel, because I'm i feel like somebody worst. should be playing a tiny violin right now yeah it's true it's true this is a very interesting question and i I thought i would put the cat amongst the pigeons a little bit because i i don't keep track either and it's i it varies for me so for example i've seen three films today Mm. i saw four films yesterday but i was Mm. preparing for a the podcast so i was up at six this morning watching movies um and you know i was preparing for the ranking the latest episode of the ranking as well so you know i like to revisit a lot of movies sometimes it'd be a couple of films a week sometimes it'll be 15 films a week it completely and utterly varies depending mm. on, on what's going on in your in your life and your career at that moment i will also say that when the premier league football starts back uh in a couple of weeks time my movie watching is going to dwindle to probably zero for a few weeks at least uh, because you know you want to watch all the little men kick the little ball and football is probably slightly above film in the totem pole at the moment <gasps> especially since I've missed it for so I've missed it I miss it Helen I miss I it know, I miss Jurgen I miss Mo I know you miss their musk <sighs> but um, I, I feel like that is the deprivation talking and uh, and yeah I hope I hope you come back to film, Chris. Don't I will come it. back to film. I will come back to film. But yeah, um, but I, I know, I know, I, I, I do have a letterboxed account. Uh, I, but I always forget to update it. I, and now oh, and again, I, I rediscover it for like a week at a time, and I'll update it really religiously, and then I'll just nah, just kind of drift yeah. away from it a little bit. But you know, for example, to give a shout out to Jamie Graham of our terrifying foes um, over at uh, over at Total Film. You know, he's a, he's a lovely, lovely guy, great, great guy. Um, he like he tweeted recently. Like, Jamie is a voracious consumer 
of, of film and TV for that matter. But he tweeted something the other week, which just like boggled my mind. He said, I'm, I think I'm only going to try and watch 500 films this year, 500 new films this year. And that's way down in previous years. And it's like, oh my God. Oh my God. I mean, that's like just a, that's a film and a half a day. It doesn't sound like a lot, but it actually, it really, really is. It really mm-hmm. is. But uh, so I don't know. I don't I don't count it up every year without fail. I also, as well as a letterbox thing, I start a, um, a new page, a new entry on my notes app on my phone. And for the first two weeks of the year without fail, <laughs> I list every movie I see. And then I just get bored and I stop doing it. So... Twenty-seven yeah, I, films. This you get bored of it. This from the man who managed to keep up Chris Hewitt's film of the day for an entire year, and yet you get bored of this. That was a bit. That was a bit. <laughs> it was a bit much. Is what it was. The film. The film thing. If you're keeping a note for yourself, who's the benefit ultimately? What do you want to do at the end of the year? You want to go, hey, everybody on Twitter, I watched three hundred and forty-one films this year. Mm. And also, do you count things that you're rewatching? So, Fall and I watched Endgame again recently. Um, I say recently like the other day and then probably again the next day you know do you count that do you count that twice where do you, where does it stop where do you yeah. get off i just um, I, I just don't get the whole competitive aspect of it just watch the films and enjoy the films and don't feel like you're having to watch the film to keep up with some self-imposed target i mean one of our listeners uh, dallas king um who's who we like a lot, but he he spent one year trying to watch all 500 of Empire's top 500 films that we voted for, do you remember, a, a few years mm. ago? Um, as well, presumably, as Knowing Dallas is staying on top of new releases. I mean, that's just, at some points, that must have felt like a chore. And it mm. shouldn't if you're sitting down mm. to watch some of the greatest films ever made. Um, exactly so, that, yeah. Yeah, so I, I feel like let's fit it in around, you know, life as well. Revisiting stuff the ranking is is really fun. Like you and the issue that's about to come out next week, we did, you know, we did Denzel Washington, and that was yes, that was did. so much fun. Like, I'm on how much, how much, how much Denzel did you, did you revisit for that? Like, you know, did you sit down and say, you know, because he's made fucking tons of movies, but I probably rewatched 20, 25 Denzel films for that, and some some films I, I was watching for the first time as well, and that, that's that is you know, pun unintended, a glory. That is a wonderful thing to do no i've i've watched a bunch for denzel um and yeah i tried to sort of watch ones which were my blind spots first and then treat myself to a rewatch of training day and all that yeah. sort of stuff um because mm-hmm. that film is awesome i also rewatched them um, <laughs> i also rewatched man on fire the other day uh which yes. is such a great film it is so good here's 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 another question for you in that regard then what's what's the most amount of films you've watched in a day Oh, well, then when you do the national press shows, you routinely watch three or four, yeah. don't you? So like, if you go in and do the sort of Monday, Tuesday ones that they do for critics who work on newspapers, mm. you, you tend to mainline a few of those. Um, Twelve. Uh, I mean, Chris, presumably yours. Yeah, yours would have been Bondathon. Bondathon. That's just back to back, isn't it? Bondathon. So Twelve. if you're looking, if you're looking at, you know, very few Bond films, especially the early ones, went over two hours. Uh, so in a 24-hour period with a five-minute break in between films, which is what we did, we took a 20-minute break every three films. So that means within a day, you're probably actually only watching films for 22 hours. So maybe 11, 11 films. I'd say 11 films, 11 and a half. That's, let's call it a draw. Um, that is what we watched. We watched 20 films in a 42-hour period, so I would say I wouldn't be far off that. 
and you were ruined by it, all three of you. Absolutely <laughs> destroyed. I am never doing that. No, neither am I. My record is six, and the last film was watching me more than I was watching it. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Had you had the yeah. chowder before you watched it? <laughs> Clearly not. <laughs> oh, man, I love a callback. Um, all right, so the next question is from at Ross Sarkley, who must be an Everton fan. Mm, mm. But this is a fair very, very good question. It's not a question. It's more of um, a nudge in the elbow for us. He says he would like this week's podcast to recommend media from black creators. So by that, I taking it to mean films that we think people should see. Uh, Amon's obviously co-written this thing with 14 films by, by black filmmakers that you can see right now. Um, people you should follow on Twitter. Books you should read. Take it away. Uh, yeah, the... The article me and Ben wrote, uh, there's a number of really good suggestions there. Um, all of these films sort of speak to what is happening uh, right now in the world. So you've got Do the Right Thing, you've got Fruitvale Station, Blind Spotting, um, mm. The Hate the Hate You Give, uh, Selma, When They See Us, Avi Duvernay, miniseries on Netflix. But in addition to all of, the, all of that media, which you should definitely check out, um, I would also recommend films which are a bit more joyful yeah. um, with, and showcase black joy and, mm -hmm. and and give you a better sort of breadth of the black mm. experience. Um, so obviously I talk about films like Black Panther. We obviously did, the, did that mm. for Empire Movie Night last Friday, which is very fun. Um, but also films like uh, Girls Trip and Creed and Inside Man and Love and Basketball, Beyond the Lights. Uh, these are all really great films which uh, showcase, uh, you know, black actors and black filmmakers in really great roles, which, um, you know, allow, allow uh, people to see black, uh, to see black people into the different shades. Um, obviously, you know, it's not to say that things like when they see us and the 13th aren't important and, and aren't something that you should watch because they are. Um, but I'd say, you know, try, try and mix that up with uh, other black films, which, are less of a downer as well. What I did want to highlight is a couple of books that I've read recently that I think are brilliant. And, and maybe if you need a bit of escapism, um, if you've been involved, if you've been reading heavily about all of this all week, this is maybe a, a, a nice way to do that. Um, there's a fantastic fantasy book called Children of Blood and Bone uh, by Tomi Adeyemi, which I think is incredible. It's kind of um, West African inspired fantasy and I love it. And then uh, Rosewater, which is a trilogy by Tade Thompson, um, the Wormwood trilogy. It's kind of about a sort of very unusual alien invasion, let's say. Um, it is absolutely riveting and I love it. Um, so I would recommend both of those very highly. One I haven't read yet, but which is literally sitting on my bedside table waiting for me to do a thing that I have to do and get that out of the way before I can read fun books again, is Queenie by Candice Carty-Williams, um, which has had just all of the great reviews uh, this year. Um, everyone I know has read it and loved it. And I just want to read fun books again so I can read it too. Yeah, those are those are fantastic recommendations. Jimbo, any, anything you want to add? Uh, while we're talking black fantasy writers, I would add N.K. Jemison to the list as well, who wrote the Inheritance trilogy, which is awesome. But uh, in terms of film mm -hmm. and TV stuff, I mean, Ammon covered up. Uh, Ammon covered up a lot of the ones that I would have said. I definitely would have uh, recommended Ava DuVernay's uh, "When They See Us," which is a four-part net Netflix miniseries about Central Park Five, as he as he mentioned, and it is 
an absolute yeah. gut punch. It's incredibly hard to watch, but obviously really incredibly is. pertinent to what's going on. But it's an extraordinary piece of television. Uh, it, yeah, re really, really amazing. Definitely watch yeah. it. Not an easy watch by any means, uh, but an important one. Feel free to, I mean, normally I wouldn't say this, but feel free to take regular breaks with when they see us. It's mm. hard to get 100%. through. I did. Like, even in the first episode, I stopped it a couple oh, of times yeah. to just mm -hmm. get up and walk around because there are a couple of interrogation scenes and I was like, I just <laughs> don't know if I can make it through this. But uh, yeah, it's 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 really grueling. But yeah, pertinent on, in so many ways, not least of all because obviously of what's going on at the moment, but also because of the, uh, shall we say, personalities involved in that case, mm -hmm. um, Donald Trump. Uh, so yes. That's a very, very good point. Indeed. Uh, yes, thank you. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to suggest a couple of people to follow on Twitter. You know, Matthew Cherry is fantastic on Twitter at the moment. Uh, you know, he obviously won the uh, Oscar for Best Animated Short uh, for Hair Love. Um, great, great short, <laughs> by the way. Yeah, uh, I don't know where that is. It's probably just on YouTube, uh, that, but it's yeah. absolutely terrific. Um, uh, I'm going to go slightly weird here because it's me. Um, Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight was directed by Ernest R. Dickerson, who was Spike Lee's DP for many, many years. Uh, shot Malcolm X with him, shot Do the Right Thing with him. Uh, he's made a couple of movies in his own right as well. Uh, and Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight is not necessarily, I would say, about the black experience, but it is about the experience of what to do if you are trapped in a bordello overnight and Billy Sane is an undead demon man outside trying to get in to kill you and your friends. So I think we can all relate to we that. All <laughs> We've all been there. Uh, and it's, it also stars uh, Jada Pinkett Smith. Back in the days, I think when she was Jada Pinkett and um, she's great in that. And so is William Sadler, as you've never seen him before. So if anyone who's, who's seen Die Hard 2, that means with his clothes on. Primarily, <laughs> hey, I've seen I've seen him wear a robe and like paint yeah. his face like a skull. You can still see the outline of his sculpted buttocks through it. Surely, <laughs> Die Hard too. If you pause it just right, you can see his penis. Actually, I think if you, you don't even need to pause it. No, I think if you pause it just right, you see his balds. I think they're, they're just they're just there swinging. Actually, the same can be true of a set of uh, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Like when when the when the cowl sort of shifts in just the right way, it's uh, absolutely true. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, I know it feels really, really first place to say this, but yes, if you haven't seen Do the Right Thing, and interestingly enough, you know Ben Travis of this parish uh, basically admitted on Twitter this week that he hadn't seen it, and he finally caught up with Do the Right Thing. Do the Right Thing is on Sky right now, and uh, you can check it out on there. And uh, it is a film that, with the exception of its complete and utter absence of mobile phones or amiches, uh, <laughs> could be made today. It feels yeah. it feels so relevant and so pertinent, so of the moment. Um, and also on Twitter, I really enjoy, well, uh, Amon Warman uh, is very interesting on Twitter as well. Um, I've heard of him. Nah, actually, no, block him, block him, block him on. Uh, and uh, Leslie Pitt is another interesting uh, British, uh, uh, black British uh, film writer and photographer, and you can follow him at Afro Film Fewer. I'd also add Candice Frederick to that. Yep. Um, I think she's great. Uh, Angelica Jade Bastien does a lot of stuff for Vulture. Mm -hmm. uh, she's great. Uh, Rebecca Theodore Vachon, who's yes. a Fatal underscore NYC. She's incredible. Yeah. Um, Emma DeBerry is brilliant um, and abs an absolutely fascinating, incredibly intellectual take on basically everything, but she's wonderful. And I'm sure if there's anything else we, we can think of, we will, we will uh, add them 
either on our Twitters or as the show goes on. And if you want to have a question read out in the Emperor podcast and treat it with the respect it deserves, uh, then you can get in touch with us via a number of methods. Best way, quite frankly, right now is to just wait for me to panic tweet and then respond or slide into my DMs, uh, as I think certainly avid film viewer did this week uh, and that's where I noticed his question but you can also get us on at Emperor Magazine you can use the hashtag Emperor Podcast or chances are we won't see it you can Facebook us nah. in fact increasingly nah. uh, and you can email us as well podcast at empireonline.com although in lockdown my access to that account is limited so if you have been sending through incredible questions by email and you've been wondering why I've been ignoring you it's because I haven't seen them time now for a guest shall we have a guest? That's yeah. a guest. Uh, so that's our guest. This week's guest is an actor turned director. Uh, you will know him best as Will in the Inbetweeners. Last seen on the big screen, of course, having a, a a poo follow him down a log flume at a theme park and splatter into his face. Uh, it, uh, but he's also the star of Friday Night Dinner, and now he is the director of this week's rather lovely. Days of the Bagnold Summer, uh, which is adapted from a graphic novel. It is, of course, the wonderful Simon Bird, and I caught up with him on Squadcast, well, just before we recorded this. Enjoy. Delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the director of Days of the Bagnold Summer, Mr. Simon Bird. How are you, sir? I'm very well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, no, it's a, it's a pleasure. I mean, ordinarily we would be in the same room, we'd be face to face, but for some reason, I don't know if you've noticed anything, I've missed the news for the last couple of months, so apparently we can't do that anymore. I, I wonder why. Yeah, well, oh, that's weird. Uh, yeah, that's half me why completely. But <laughs> love you. If, if you say so. Yeah, precisely. Um, I start all my interviews at the moment with this. How is lockdown life for you? Uh, what, what are you doing? How are you keeping yourself occupied? Um, well, I've got a two-year-old and a four-year-old. So how do I keep myself occupied? A lot of um, Guess Who. Do you remember the, the children's game? Yes, Guess Who. Yes. Um, we do that. There's sort of uh, kids yoga on YouTube. Okay. Um, a lot of those sort of like draw along videos where you uh, the, there's a children's illustrator and you follow their instructions and draw a, a penguin. Oh, that's um, not too bad. That's that's all right. I mean, I'd, I'd be doing that if I didn't have kids. So it's just, <laughs> yeah, it's worked out very well for me. Guess who is a very very entertaining game. <laughs> bring it back. That's what I say. Uh, are you working? Are you writing anything? Or are you are you working anything Absolutely for? Absolutely not. No. Post lockdown. Uh, no. Got, no. Um, uh, did you not hear me? I, I've got a two-year-old and a four-year-old. So that, <laughs> uh, I've got, as I said, guess who commitments. But that fills up my diary. No, I, I wish, but it's it's very hard to get the uh, creative headspace at the moment. Yeah. Uh, but nursery starts on Monday. I mean, should it be starting on Monday? Almost certainly not. <laughs> um, it is. And I'll be taking full advantage. Excellent, excellent. And then working on, I'm working on more stuff. And I can, I presume that the Guess Who movie is next for you. That yeah, that's it's yeah. in the works. I've got the rights. Yeah, yeah. It's just ninety minutes of people going. Does he have glasses? Does he have a mustache? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is something in that. There, there genuinely is, but it's probably ninety minutes worth. <laughs> but, but still, congratulations on the film. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. So oh, it, it's time. really interesting because it's your first time out the gate as a, as a director, but it feels very. <laughs> this is a compliment, Simon. I assure you, it feels very assured. It feels very, very confident. I mean, it's meticulously framed. You know, is this something that you've been building up to in your head for for a long, long time? Yeah, definitely. I don't know whether it was like always my ambition from when I was a. A, a child uh 
but I think it is a sort of manifestation of what I always wanted to do. I, I always wanted to do comedy, uh, which mm. to me had there's a there's a big overlap there in terms of as a stand up, you're in charge of what you put out there. Like you're you the buck stops with you, and you, you mm. get to present your vision sort of unfiltered to the world. And and obviously that that's very similar to to being a director, except that directing I think is much more fun because it's collaborative, and that you get to work with amazing people who are all sort of experts in their field and hopefully mm. make something that is greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah, absolutely. But presumably you don't get heckled as a director. <laughs> well, you, well, you clearly went on set. <laughs> Put the camera there, would you? <laughs> absolutely vile some of the stuff Dolan was coming out with. <laughs> but in terms, of, in terms of this, it is based on a graphic novel and it's one of the growing army of movies over the last few years. Things like Wilson, things like The Death of Stalin that are based on graphic novels that aren't about superheroes and yeah. <laughs> exploding buildings and whatnot, um, which is really refreshing, really, really interesting. How did it come into your life? Are you a big graphic novel guy? Um, I'm a medium graphic novel guy. Uh, <laughs> I like them, but I'm not got I'm just sorry I'm looking at my bookshelves and I have got a few but not yeah not a huge number okay. um it came into my life because my my wife bought it for me for Christmas one year I think I think it had it it just came out and got really good reviews I think it's the first mm. graphic novel to be nominated for the Costa Prize and she works in publishing so she's got her ear to the ground yeah I, I absolutely loved it um I don't know wh- whether I would have loved it so much if it was an, a novel as opposed to a graphic novel. I, I guess I, I would. I mean, it's the, the tone, really, of the of the book that I loved, which was it was this, you know, it sits somewhere between comedy and, and drama. Um, and it's just a very beautifully observed, uh, very honest and very economical portrait of these two characters in which mm. literally nothing happens. <laughs> <laughs> that's my favorite I, I love I love I love film in which nothing happens well you know famously every episode of Seinfeld essentially nothing happened that exactly, was there yeah. but I love that I love like the most dramatic thing that happens in this movie not to give away spoilers is is a trip to a restaurant or a trip to the beach or yeah. making fudge well, you know really getting to know these these two this mother and, and, and her son over the course of of 90 minutes is is glorious that's very nice of you to say that's what we're going for so yeah <laughs> But visually, do you take a cue from the fact that it is a graphic novel? How much does that influence you uh, in terms of you know the look of the film? I think probably not very not very much. I think there's maybe there is I think there's one maybe two images that we just outright stole from the graphic novel because they were so good. Um, but b- beyond that, I think the aesthetic of the film is actually weirdly sort of the polar opposite of the aesthetic of the book, which felt like a, a sort of um, spicy decision at the time because you know, I, obviously I, I loved the book, and then I, for some reason, decided to make the film look totally different. Um, and the thinking there was that the graphic novel is 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 very it's black and white, and there's no backgrounds, and yeah, it's it's all focused on the on the characters, and mm. it's quite sort of uh, sketchily drawn. That's I'm not having a go at Joff Winterhart's artistic talent because he's He's amazing, but it, uh, it's deliberately sketchily drawn. Yeah. Um, uh, and so at one stage I was, you know, seriously thinking about taking my cue from that. And there was, I think there was definitely an argument for you know, doing what every director really wants to do, which is go black and white uh, and make it really sort of 
grungy and um you know we we're talking about just having the only music the only score being metal all the way through and part of me actually the more i talk about that it sounds really good maybe i'll reshoot it um, <laughs> but I, I don't know for, for whatever reason i talked myself out of that and we ended up going totally the opposite and making it widescreen and quite poppy and um yeah both in terms of the colors and in terms of the music um and i i I, I think the thinking there was that um, it'd be nice to tr- treat these very ordinary characters, uh, you know, as if they are movie stars and uh, make their story, which, like you say, is, is so small, feel epic and ultimately tri- triumphant. In the midst of that, you talked about remaking the movie, and I kind of love—I would love the idea—and you can you can say no to this, obviously, Simon. But that for the rest of your directorial career, all you do is remake this movie, but with a completely different aesthetic each time. So next time is black and white with the heavy not, metal I'm music. Not say no to that. That's exactly what I'm going to do. That's <laughs> that's a great idea. Every three years until the day I die, nobody's done it. <laughs> Nobody has done it. That's true. Yeah. There's oh, probably a reason why. <laughs> okay. That and the guess. Well, I'll do the guess who movie first and then. then guess who movie and then this and then this. Um, you mentioned there, you know, the idea that, you know, every director wants to make a movie ultimately in black and white. Um, was this a difficult movie to get made? And if you had suggested making it in black and white, would it, we wouldn't be talking here today, I'm guessing. Uh, um, well, I, I should say. I th- I, no, my my producer is great, and and weirdly, I think if I had really pushed for it to be in black and white, he, he may have supported me. I, th- I mean, maybe that means he isn't a very good producer. Um, <laughs> but I, I really can't complain because I'm I know I'm in an incredibly fortunate position, and most first time filmmakers uh, don't have you know I have for what it's worth quote-unquote celebrity status mm. uh, and I'm well aware that probably got me into the room in the first place um, but you know even with that it was very hard raising the money it's a very low budget film so we didn't have to raise that much compared to mm. most movies but um, yeah it, it was tricky and I, I had no knowledge of the independent filmmaking world at all and didn't realize the way it works which is that you don't really get you know physically get the money until you start shooting because no financiers you know financiers don't want to take the risk and think it might fall through at any minute so really yeah. no none of the financiers actually sign the paperwork until everybody's on set and so there's this weird sort of Shit. two or three week period where um you're hiring people and you, you really don't know whether the film is going to happen at all um so that was for me, that was by far the most stressful part of the process. Shooting after that was a total breeze. <laughs> it was an absolute breeze. Um, and I, I guess as well, part of it is you, you, you get in that room and you can, go, you can go, yeah, it's low budget, but I can get incredible actors. Because yeah. I think actors trust a director who's an actor for one thing, but also you can get Tams and Greg, you can get people like that that you've worked with, you can, you can come along and do a, a few days. Totally. It def- that, I mean, that definitely helped. Um, they will say, and... I mean, you know, I think, I believe that the script was good enough that those people would have been up for doing it anyway. And uh, they say they didn't just do it as a favour to me. But, yeah, obviously it massively <laughs> helps that I'm, I know Tamsin very well and she probably felt 
you know, quite awkward about it and felt like she was obliged to do it. And I took full advantage. Why not, indeed? And you mentioned uh, that you know, the project was initially brought to you by your wife, uh, Lisa Owens, who, who wrote the, the screenplay uh, in the end. And this is not unheard of. I mean, um, Ben Wheatley works with his wife, Amy Jump, in a similar capacity. She writes scripts and, you know, he tends yeah. to then leave her alone during the writing process. What, what about you and Lisa? How did, how did you work yeah, together exactly on this? exactly the same. I think it would have been, um, yeah, there would have been divorce proceedings if I, if I hadn't left. The only way it was ever going to work was if, um, you know, she, I let her get on with her bit of it and then she let me get on with my bit. Um, you know, that's not to say that we weren't both really, you know, f- feeding back and uh, giving notes. And obviously this, that's a big part of the script development is, you know, the writer gets notes and goes away and redrafts. In fact, Lisa's first draft was so good, there wasn't that much of that. But, um, mm. yeah, we we definitely, I, I wasn't like, you know, uh, over her shoulder saying, oh, there should be a semicolon there. And uh, can you talk about your cast? I mean, your principal cast specifically, uh, Monica Dolan and Earl Cave. Um, yeah. Who... I think even if you didn't know going into this was the son of Nick Cave, you would look at him and go, that's the son of Nick Cave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, they are both incredible and just made the film so much better than we could have hoped it would be. Uh, I mean, I, you know, what I, I knew what I was getting with Monica and that was why she was sort of top of my wish list is that, hmm. you know, I'd seen her in so much stuff and knew exactly what she could do. Um, Andrew was a, thought it was sort of weird that she hadn't yet made that like Olivia Coleman leap up into um, yep. you know heading heading movie casts precisely um, which you know is obviously around the corner for her uh, so I just you know I got in there early um, but with <laughs> Earl was just a result of open casting really um, he our um, we had a sort of child casting director. Not the casting director was not a child. Um, I phrase that very badly. The uh, casting director had a speciality in casting children. Uh, <laughs> um, although that again, not a bad idea. Um, no, but, yeah, the Guess Who movie—that's that's spot yeah. on. Uh, and she—it was quite—it was a weird process actually because we saw we saw like two hundred, I think two hundred teenagers. And we still hadn't really found the right person. And then at the last minute, for various reasons, connected to the horror show that is, I've already mentioned, of raising money for an independent film, our date Mm -hmm. shifted back a couple of weeks. And suddenly Earl, who before then had been unavailable because he was in Australia doing the Ned Kelly film with Russell Crowe, was suddenly available and came in and just was, was just totally brilliant straight away, and we knew it was him. So that was that was a, a good a stroke of luck, really. And the last thing I wanted to ask you about the movie is the the Bell and Sebastian presence in the soundtrack. Um, clearly, I'm, I'm guessing you're you're a fan. This isn't something that just happens by accident. You just you don't just wake up one morning and Bell and Sebastian are scoring your film. That's <laughs> no, I'm a I'm a massive fan, um, and again, it, it, it's slightly counterintuitive for the film um i think i approached the music thinking that it should do a similar job that um the drawings do in the uh in the graphic novel in that it's sort of 
an additional bit of of scoring that that can have a massive effect on the on the tone and and feel of the film and in the same way that Joff's drawings are slightly uh well they're sort of just very human and, and warm and empathetic but also have a slightly sort of diy feel i felt that's that that felt like it Ben and Sebastian feel like they tick a lot of those boxes as well. Um, mm. That they're sort of innately quite witty, but um, yeah, in a very relatable way. Uh, I mean, there was, uh, I should always hold my hands up as, as well and say that there was a fear that it was a bit too on the nose that, you know, Ben and Sebastian <laughs> have, have, a, you know, have such a reputation for doing that sort of thing that yeah. does it become, um, does it feel a bit derivative? But I just think ultimately they're so good that it's not their, it's not their fault they're so good that they their name represents an entire genre of music. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, and I think I th- I th- yeah, my fear was that it would that it would tip into whimsy, but I, th- I think yeah. the actual music doesn't do that, thankfully. Mm. And also, it, it's sort of offset at various points with bursts of thrash metal as well, so that, that helps sort of ground <laughs> it a bit. Yes, it does. And uh, in terms of the process working with them, did you again, as with Lisa, did you leave them alone, or was it a very, very close collaboration? Totally. I think if it, if it, if it was going to be frowned upon me giving notes to Lisa, I think me me daring to give music notes to Ben Sebastian uh, would have been. Uh, although, having said that, they are just the nicest, sweetest people, and there were a couple of times where I sort of fed in thoughts here and there, and they took it incredibly well, much better than they needed to. Um, so what sort yeah, of stuff would, like, like you need to do a G here instead of an F that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. That's a bit flat actually. Stuart. <laughs> uh, um, no, they, um, they, they were unbelievably generous and, and sent, you know, f- the, the week after they'd, uh, we'd sort of spoken and they'd agreed to do it. They sent over just, um, you know, a full Dropbox folder of, of material stuff you know new stuff they'd done literally that week as well as lots of older instrumental stuff they'd been working on so yeah mm-hmm. it was as a Bella Sebastian fan it was like an unbelievable privilege to just be wading through all this unreleased material uh, Simon I'm going to let you go um, is this the first interview you've done for a while where there hasn't been a single in-betweeners question <laughs> well you've ruined it I know you've blown it I know um, <laughs> Um, that's, that's tangential that's tangential okay, I'm getting away fine. with it yeah uh, yeah it, it, it would have been <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't about the in-betweeners <laughs> since you brought it up no I think to be fair some of the questions have been totally uh, justified in that it is a film about a teenager growing up in suburbia and there mm-hmm. are therefore links with the in-betweeners and actually mm-hmm. that was a you know for a long time, I really thought this was not the right project for me to direct for exactly that reason. I didn't want to have to, uh, I didn't want it to seem like I was sort of piggybacking on the in-between success and more to the point, you know, I wanted to just try and do my own thing that was totally removed from the in-between. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think the, despite there being some superficial links in terms of uh, the, sort of the age of the character, <laughs> uh, I think the the tone and style of the film is so different that they've hopefully feel like very different things. 
yeah, it doesn't feel like a spin-off or a crossover episode. Yeah, yeah, I can't yeah, see <laughs> I can't see that happening at all. And listen, we, we did it. We got through an entire interview without mentioning the in-betweeners once. So I'm very, very happy yeah, about that. And you. and so should you be. Uh, Simon, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'd like to get back to, uh, to Guess Who. Brilliant. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Bye. Okay, so that was Simon Bird. Let's move on now into this week's movie news. There's not a lot of it, I have to say. It's been a little bit sparse on the old movie news front this week. Um, not a lot of films have been pushed back. I think we're we're kind of beyond that point now, aren't we? I think, but you know, it's it's yeah. you know everything's either been pushed back or cancelled, or or it's just waiting to see what happens. But. People are still committing to making movies and we applaud them and we say yes to them. And one of the people who is committed to making a movie is Ryan Baby Goose Gosling. And he has committed to star in The Wolfman, the latest Blumhousey, universally rebooty of the dark university universal monsters y type person and this news dropped last week immediately after the podcast went up so fuck you ryan gosling uh but <laughs> let's talk about this um you know i mean the invisible woman was great invisible man that one that was great. she was so good i couldn't see her spoiler helen spoiler <laughs> <laughs> The Invisible Man was great. So, I mean, this could work. This could be a, a similarly fun thing. I think the Benicio Del Toro Wolfman, which was the most recent take on this, I think, um, was kind of overblown, overdone, very, very much bigger. I mean, they went for the period thing and that was kind of cool and kind of interesting, but it didn't ultimately add much to the tension and the excitement and the story. Maybe having an actor of Gosling's character will do that instead. It will certainly draw in the younger lady crowd. Mm -hmm. So I guess that people will enjoy that. I mean, what if he tears his shirt on screen? Everybody's <laughs> going to want to be there to see that, aren't they? Did, uh, did any of you watch Mike Nichols' Wolf? The nineties Jack yes. Nicholson, yeah, uh, James Spader one. I have a real soft spot for that film. That's a proper guilty pleasure for me. I really like it. So for me, that is the definitive Wolfman. Every time I'm on the pod, James, you're you're revealing more guilty pleasures about yourself. I have this a lot. What can I tell you? I have. Although to be fair, I have watched one of my one of my long term guilty pleasures this week and had the scales fall from my eyes, which is no, a very upsetting thing. I rewatched Equilibrium, uh, which I have no, long no, defended. No, 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 no. Yes, you, you say that, but did you watch? Have you seen it since two thousand and three? Because I put it to you. James. Because you tread upon my dreams. <laughs> I mean, it was a price. I thought I paid it gladly, but it turned out that's not the case. I watched it. It was not without incident. And I came away from it thinking, you know what? I really like this film. I really enjoy it. But it is objectively utter shit. No. <laughs> it really is. I no, I love it. I love it. I love more. it. But it is not good. It's not good. Sean Pertwee's floating head may be wonderful, but honestly. Sean Pertwee. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's extraordinary. It's, I want that oh. film remade and I want Werner Herzog to play father. Uh, I think that would be extraordinary. I still really want to see. Did we do that feature on Movie Reloads? Because that's I don't that think had we two did. great Yes, because it has in the same scene, he has two reloads. He has one where the magazines come from in his sleeves and go, and then yeah. another way he throws those little weeble magazines down the corridor and then slaps yeah. the guns down on them. It's amazing. Yeah. Just a perfect routine. Oh, it's Tell perfect. me the oh. gun guitar still holds up, right? Um, what are you about? <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't. I look, look. I'm the first to admit, and I am complicit in this. Like Empire gave this film three stars. I gave it four stars on DVD, and that's going to be on my fucking tombstone. Like I absolutely loved it. The gun carter is amazing, and then you watch it again. It's like it's a bit shit. No. Um, 
No, it is. No. It is. It is. I'm sorry, but it is. Search and it your makes feelings. You know it to be true. Absolutely no sense. Um, but it does look quite cool. But it's just a bit. Even the action, even the fighting in it, doesn't look as cool as you remember it did. Like you watch it again, you're like, oh god. At least tell me you still think the bit where in in the final fight where he sort of steps into the machine gun, it rolls over his back and into his hands. At least tell me that's still pretty cool. It's, I mean, oh my lord, <laughs> that's not the best moment. The best moment is when those guys have shotguns pointed at him and he flips the barrels. So they spin around, catches them in midair and shoots them in the face. That is superior to the, the, the assault rifle bit. He but, also uh, slices Ty Diggs in half. He does. Is, 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 is awesome. Mm. There's yeah, so was. many awesome bits. I, I will never agree with All you. Right, Alan, Alan, Alan. I put it to you here. I put it to you here. I give it to you <sighs> now the challenge, the equilibrium challenge. Watch equilibrium again before you come back on the podcast and then okay. we'll talk. I'm telling you, this has happened to me too many times. I, I can never watch Nuns on the Run again because I'm going to discover that's not good either. <laughs> and I don't think I can deal with that. Wow, so, that, that would be a real revelation, <laughs> wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to die on that hill. Nuns on the Run is a fucking classic and I'll hear no more about it. Wow. Remember when this was a news story like <laughs> <laughs> only only very vaguely <laughs> i don't know how you make that quasi-scientific in the way that they did with you know the the invisible man i i, I don't know how you make that a kind of presumably modern day slightly lower you know lower budget level thing because the invisible man you could say that they, they know how to, you know you, you have the technology you could do this if you had enough money and enough time and yeah. stuff but wolf wolf people do not exist Wolf, wolf people are quite hard to do well. And we've we've all seen the TV shows. In every Supernatural TV show, not Supernatural with a capital S, although also that, um, <laughs> the, the wolf people tend to be introduced sometime in the second season, mm. second or third season. Um, and, you know, often the effects are dodgy because it's incredibly difficult and incredibly expensive to do well. Uh, so I'm, I'm interested that this is a kind of Bloomhousey approach. But of course, in Supernatural, the series, it's very easy to tell because the first signs of lycanthropy in that show is extra hair around the nipples. So you can you can tell <laughs> when the werewolf transformation is coming. Now, this is this is the scientific reason for this. It's going to be obvious. It's going to be that, you know, someone erects a 5G mast in the local area of where Ryan Gosling lives, and it turns him into a werewolf, as we all know 5G does. Right. I feel like Weta would be up to the challenge. I rewatched War for the Planet of the Apes the other day and the the technology in that film to do what they do is just insane. So oh, look, no question that people can do it, just like it's expensive. No, it'll be they'll send Ryan Gosling down to a fancy dress shop, get him to buy <laughs> a slap on moustache and some funny eyebrows, and then he'll go oh god I'm transforming look over there and the camera will go <laughs> to the corner and the character will go what is it and they'll turn back and he's got the, the eyebrows slapped on his forehead but one slightly askew and then falls off in the next scene <laughs> like do we have the money to fix this in post no okay <laughs> looks great guys I'm a wolf man honest um, I think that's what's going to happen it's going to it's going to be okay. he's going to make you been believe a filmmaker, Chris. I should have been a filmmaker yes I'm on yes <laughs> every week I leave nuggets on this podcast and you know the the offers I've had from Hollywood, none. Silch, zero. So Corey Finley, who directed Thoroughbreds, is apparently in the running to take the job. And uh, apparently Blumhouse and Universal have been taking all sorts of pitches from all sorts of filmmakers, none of whom appear to be me. What the actual fuck? What the hell? What is going on? They do say one interesting thing, which is that it's going to be along the lines of Nightcrawler, which is a really good touchstone, actually, for a Wolfman movie. So that, I mean, not to slag it off, that does really give me hope. Um, but... Mm. But yeah, I'll just be intrigued to see how they do it well. If you're quoting Nightcrawler in that context, that's a really good sign because that film is fantastic. 
Mm-hmm. And Jake Gyllenhaal probably should have won the Oscar that year. He was Although, Amon, have you seen it recently? Because I've got to be honest, the gun carter in it does not stand up to repeat viewing. <laughs> I haven't watched Nightcrawler in a while. Admittedly. I thought you meant Nightcrawler as in the blue German fellow with the tail who keeps teleporting <laughs> because that would be... No. No. But no. Uh, speaking of... Uh, I still really want a Bamf doll. Do you remember those from the comics? Bamf doll. No, I mean, I'm familiar I'm, with the Banff sound. A What's doll. a Banff yeah. doll? Well, at one point he made his girlfriend a doll version, or she, somebody made his girlfriend a doll version of him, and it's a really cute little, like, cuddly toy blue <laughs> dude with tail. It's a super cute. Anyway, it's in the X-Men comics. Is Banff the coolest sound effect in comics, or huh. is Snicked the coolest sound That's effect what I in comics? Snicked or is there something, something else? Anna Herzog is saying it. What's the Spidey sound? Thwip. 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 Yeah. Thwip. Thwip is a good one. I mean, I'm snicked all the way, obviously. Yeah. I'm, I'm... I, I remember the, the Old Man Logan uh, comic, which is fantastic. Mm. You should definitely read it. But when he finally pops his claws uh, after keeping them sheathed for like six issues or so, he, the snicked gets like a full two-page <laughs> thing. And it's just, it's awesome. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'd vote snicked. I think it is. It's probably snicked. It's probably snicked. Anyway, um, the reason I bring up Nightcrawler and the X-Men is because you see this news this week that Evan Peters, and we like Evan Peters, don't we? We like him. He's a good guy. Evan mm. Peters, good actor, very good actor, uh, has been cast in WandaVision, the Disney Plus show uh, featuring Scarlet Witch and Vision uh, in some sort of weird alternate reality mind control type thing, we think, which explains how Vision is walking around despite being very, very dead currently as things stand. Now, I, as far as I know, there's no news on who Evan Peters is playing, but I'm beginning to wonder something. You think it's going to be? Quicksilver. Yeah. Last one I'm going to throw out there and I want you mm. guys to discuss it. It seems unlikely, I would think. I mean, I know that that is a mind-bending sort of reality-shifting show, so um, it, I, I guess it theoretically could be. Feel, it feels a little disrespectful to Aaron Taylor-Johnson, but there you go. Here's what we know, Jimbo. We know that uh, Scarlet Witch, uh, Elizabeth Olsen's character, Wanda Maximoff, mm-hmm. is uh, going to be in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. So we suspect that her reality-altering powers may be a key to opening up the actual multiverse, not the bullshit one they pretended they'd opened up in Spider-Man <laughs> Far From Home. By the way, spoilers for a lot of Marvel stuff here. Um, <laughs> we also know, of course, that she is the sister of Quicksilver. We do. So, is this somehow a way of bringing in mutants into this world by bringing in Quicksilver from another time, another dimension, another place, Amon is shaking, nodding, no. shaking his head in vehement no. agreement. <laughs> <laughs> so the opposite of that, yeah, um, yeah no, I, w- <laughs> I would say it's unlikely because if I'm Kevin Feige, I want a clean break um, from the 20th Century Fox, and mm-hmm. because it ended so well, on such a but Dower notes. And, he's not going to get it. Because Deadpool 
is such a huge hit. So there's going to be a Deadpool knocking around at some point. I so- think Deadpool will exist in his own little satirical universe, mm-hmm. separate from everything yeah. else. Yeah. But how would that work, Jimbo? Because Deadpool would only be funny if he can take the piss out of the universe in which he exists. So he's, he, you know, he'll be if he's in that world, he'll want to be able to take the piss out of Tony Stark. He'll end up on Pandora taking the piss out of Jake Sully. Uh, they'll find something else for him. To, I mean, I'd pay to see that. Uh, but they'll find something else for him to do. But I don't think yeah. they'll want to piss in the MCU pool. Okay. Well, listen, I'm just throwing it out there. I'm just throwing it out there. I'm, I'm sure this might, this might be just a coincidence. But I'm just saying, if in a year's time we watch WandaVision and Evan Peters is playing Quicksilver, then I want you to mark this moment. I want you to mark it. I want you to return to it. And I want you to bow down before me. Yeah, okay, that's not going to happen, though. So. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Okay, moving on. Uh, oh, by the way, quickly, while we're on the subject of uh, Fox and uh, Disney Plus and whatnot, because you can, uh, someone brought this to my attention this week, and I hadn't noticed this. You go on Disney Plus, and they have all the Fox X-Men movies, right? But they don't mm-hmm. have Logan. They don't have the Deadpool films. In other words, they don't have the R-rated stuff. Yeah. They also wow. don't have they also don't have on Disney Plus as of yet, and they may they may be changing this at some point down the line. There's not a single classic Fox movie on there. There's not a French connection, there's not a Die Hard, there's not an Alien, there's not a Cleopatra, there's you know I'm sure there's a Home Alone uh, because, you know, it's PG and very, very family friendly. But what I'm saying there's just not an, an adult themed Fox movie or Fox Searchlight movie on Disney Plus at the moment. What the hell's going on there? Well, Disney Plus was, I think, sold as a family-friendly safe zone. Um, so there's very, very little in the way of of dangerous content on there. I think in the US, it's mostly been hived off to Hulu. Okay. Uh, any other bits of news that you guys want to discuss? Well, yes. Um, Frozen 2 is now coming to Disney Plus two weeks early in the UK. It's going to be there on July 3rd. July 3rd is going to be a big day on Disney Plus because that is, of course, also more importantly, when Hamilton drops. <laughs> so um, I wonder if they're going to keep the word motherfucker in Hamilton. They're not. Anyway. They've, they've already said they're not. Yeah, oh, really? Cutting it or bleeping it or how they're doing it? Uh, I think oh. they may have found a solid a way around it. But hang on a minute. So, But there are, there are F-bombs. Yeah. Yeah. on Disney Plus. So what's the problem? There must I think be. the line Where? Southern motherfucking Democratic Republicans is maybe a little yeah. bit too far. <laughs> 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 mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exciting. But yeah, if there, honestly, if there is an F-bomb currently hiding on Disney Plus, let us know where it is, and we'll find it, and mm. we will give it shelter. There must be F-bombs, <sighs> because they have one per PG-13 film. Do any of the MCU films have F-bombs in them? No. Really? Uh, the, first one, the first one in the MCU would have been Tony Stark saying fuck you to Thanos at the end of Endgame, but obviously they didn't go with that in the end. Yeah. Wait a second. Wait a second. Uh, Wolverine says fuck in the X-Men First Class. Yeah. And, uh, and um, uh, Professor X says fuck in Days of Future Past, which is on Disney+. Plus. Yeah. So we need to check out whether Days of Future Past has been DF-bombed. 
<laughs> okay, that is our that is our um, task for the next week, and we're going to finish off uh, moving smoothly from the X Men and F bombs to the Can twenty twenty <laughs> lineup. <laughs> um, uh, so Can is still going ahead after a fashion. So it is happening, uh, I think, in July, and it's happening online. And um, even though none of us will be able to actually be in Can, neither will the filmmakers. Um, so thanks a bunch, COVID nineteen, or should I say? COVID Diesnuff. Mm, if that is your real name. But mm. your Duolingo is really coming along. I'm only now up to 18 and 19. Wow. Uh, so anyway. Diesnuff is still a bit too far. Um, about quarter past four. So, <laughs> films in the lineup include The French Dispatch by Wes Anderson. I see Wes Anderson's Ooh. made his film again. Uh, two films by Steve McQueen, uh, one of which is one hour and eight minutes long. Oh my God, it's already my favorite film of the year. Uh, <laughs> Lover's Rock and Mangrove, uh, Naomi Kawasi's Asagakuru, or True Mothers. There's a Francois Ozon film in there, Thomas Finterberg's Druk, or Another Round. Um, let me see what else. Uh, there's These are people who are returning, returning to Cannes. Uh, newcomers include... Uh, Squad by Atan Amin from Egypt, Limbo by Ben Sharik from the United Kingdom, Ammonite by Francis Lee, which is his much anticipated follow up to God's Own Country. Uh, and there's tons of stuff in there. Figo Mortensen's debut film, Falling, uh, mm. in which he plays Lance Henriksen's son, no less, is that's in there as well. Uh, so there's a, a decent lineup. Is Soul still set to debut at Cannes, the Pixar film? So, yeah, I've just got to the bottom of it. There are four animated films. There is uh, Goro Miyazaki's Aya and the Witch, or Aya Tamajo, uh, Flea from Denmark, uh, Joseph from France, and Soul by Pete Docter. Uh, that's interesting. So that's July. We'll be able to see Soul. Uh, so what do we think of that? Are we looking forward to it? How, how is Cannes going to work uh, online? Yeah, it's, it's weird. I mean, it's good of Cannes to announce this lineup just to give the films the same kind of boost in, in, in sort of prestige that they would have had from being there. Um, but but it's, it isn't the same, is it? And I, I think that's going to be really hard for everyone to take. And I really feel for the organisers because it must be so hard to work on something like this all year and then, mm. you know, get to this point and, and not be able to sort of go ahead properly in the, in the way that they would traditionally do. Um, 16 films directed by women this year out of a total of 56, which is, you know, slight step forward, but not a massive one. Um, but yeah, I mean, some good films. Uh, it's just, it, it's hard to th say how this will really work or how it will affect people and, and how it will affect the trajectory of those films because there are so many mm. crazy factors going into film yeah. production. Like, how does it work? Like, do you have to apply for your accreditation? Therefore... You know, you'd be able to see Seoul, or is it only available to a certain group of... I, I don't know. I've honestly no idea how it works, or how Venice is going to work, or how Toronto is going to work. Presuming, of course, that they can't work as they normally do in person. I think increasingly, it looks like they're not going to do that. Um, is there anything else? We should maybe talk about Ridley Scott for a second, um, who has said that he wants to re-evolve the Alien franchise after Prometheus and Alien Covenant. Um so what he actually said, and I think it's worth listening to this, it came from the LA Times where he talked to Justin Chang. He said, I think there's still a lot of mileage in Alien, but I think you'll have to now re-evolve. What I always thought when I was making it, the first one, why would a creature like this be made? And why was it traveling in what I always thought was a kind of Warcraft, which was carrying a cargo of these eggs? What was the purpose of the vehicle? 
And what was the purpose of the eggs? That's the thing to question. Who, why, and for what purpose is the next idea, I think. Now, this confused me a bit because I thought that was the whole freaking idea of Prometheus mm. and indeed Covenant. So I mm -hmm. don't understand what there is to re-evolve. Just, just enough now. What if... Evan Peters is Quicksilver, and he comes in to the... He, he runs so fast, he punches a hole in time and space for a new, creates a new dimension, turns up in the Alien franchise. Oh, oh God. Um, the As much as I didn't like Alien Covenant, it has its backers in... Like, there are people who really go to bat for that film. Um, they enjoy the fingering. They do. <laughs> I'll do the fingering. I, I think it's a Friday the 13th movie, but with an alien. <laughs> But there, there are people who would tell you, you know, that it's got subtext up the wazoo. You know, I know writers who use subtext and they're all cowards. Um, but it's, it's, it's got a great fucking ending. And it's got such a good ending that I do kind of want to see what he does next. But, mm -hmm. you know. I only, I only have two requests if we're getting more alien films. Request number one. Mm -hmm. Make sure that every space dude wears their helmet all of the damn time. So yep. quest number one. Practice safe space. Quest number two, don't be a dumb space person. If something <laughs> looks weird, do not go near it. Do not approach it. Do not put your face in it. Be smarter. Yeah. important. You the site from orbit. <laughs> yeah, only way to be sure. Absolutely. If you are if something massive is falling behind you, <laughs> run to the right. <laughs> Don't keep running in a straight line. <laughs> Absolutely. Jesus Christ. Anyway, looking forward to it. Let's hope it, and I'm sure it'll show up in Disney Plus before too long. <laughs> Mommy, what's a chest burster? Shut up. Watch Frozen 2 again. And now it is time to talk about the reviews. Uh, a couple of films out this week. Well done, everybody. And uh, the first one is Guest of Honor, the new film from Adam McGoyan. Hell's Bells? Have you seen this one? I have, yes. Okay, good. Um, so, yeah, so this is a kind of time-hopping uh, film framed by a, a sort of well, framing device, um, where a young woman called uh, Veronica... <laughs> we're, we're very tired. We're, we're very tired. This has gone very long. <laughs> framed by a framing device. What do you call it? A device and it frames things. I can't find the word. It's framed by a conversation with a young woman called Veronica who's played by Lesla de Oliveira, who is oh, the, bad, the baddie in Lock and Key, if you've seen Lock and Key. Anyway. I haven't. Veronica. Mm, she's good. It's a great, it's a great, great show. Watch yes, it. I watched all nine hours mm. of that. So Veronica is setting up her father's funeral and she's having a conversation with a priest, Father Greg, who's played by Luke Wilson, an odd piece of casting. Oh, um, I love And <laughs> they are talking about her life and her father's life. Her father is Jim. He's played by David Thewlis. Um, so it's mostly his story, a bit her story. It's a little unfocused, if I'm honest. She has had, she was framed for something. She was a music teacher and she was framed for... Uh, a crime she didn't commit and sent to prison at one point. We don't quite know what or why initially. We do learn pretty quickly that she was resistant to any attempt to get her out early, that there's clearly some kind of guilt there, even though she isn't guilty of the thing that she was sent to prison for. Um, so there's all these kind of layers. And then Jim himself is um, a widower. Uh, he lost her mother uh, in her childhood and was a former restaurateur who became a public health inspector. So he's spent his days basically threatening to shut down restaurants rather than, you know, actually making food himself anymore. Um, yeah. And, and it, it's kind of 
I just find it a really odd film because I wasn't sure what it was really trying to say and and how it was really getting there. And I mean, nothing against the performances, which I think are all very, very good, but it doesn't have the kind of focus of a Goyen's best work, you know, something like Chloe, something like The Sweet Hereafter. Um, it, it just doesn't have the same kind of... Um, Dramatic impetus. Yeah, the dramatic impetus of those are just the the incisiveness, the sharpness that you're kind of Mm. looking for. Um, It it just seemed to be a collection of things that happen. And and again, I don't think there are terribly bad scenes. Each individual piece of writing is good. You know, there's a whole little subplot where Jim is going into an Armenian restaurant that's trying to about to serve, you know, rabbits basically and and he kind of objects to them doing their own slaughter and not slaughtering but doing their own preparation of the rabbits no rare bit james um (laughs) so there's there's all these bits where you know those scenes are individually quite good but they just don't seem to add anything much to the overall plot you don't quite get why they're there Mm. um and it's all quite chilly and, and a little bit um removed and everyone is you know holding their emotions in quite close and and that can work brilliantly if you know why the film is showing you that. And I, I felt like I didn't always know that in this case. So it's a little uninvolving because of that. Um beautifully made and as I say, great performances. I just I just didn't feel like it was adding up to as much as it should have added up to. I completely agree with that. And you know, to your credit, Han, you made it sound a lot more coherent in explaining the plot than it actually is. Uh, because, I mean, there's, there's a line at one point, um, Veronica says to the priest about her father, he made a lot of odd choices. This screenplay goes places where it just, got, the, the last 40 minutes completely lost me. Uh, it just mm. it just got ludicrous to me. Like, if my eyebrows could go any higher, they would have leapt off my face. I was just like, what is going on? It was impossible to emotionally engage with what was happening. Um, so, so yeah, I was perplexed by by this film. Um, it really, I mean, it's just in no particular order. This, this is stuff that happens. There's a hoax gone wrong. There's food inspecting. There's a rabbit named Benjamin Bunny. There's sexting. There's deep fried rabbit ears. And like, I don't know how any of that coheres. It's so weird. I would love to talk to Atom about it and just ask him what the hell. Um, but but yeah, it, it didn't work for me. That's a shame. I thought it was, uh, yeah, uh, I thought it was well, well, well acted. Um, I thought the central mystery was was interesting as far as it went, um, but I, I think uh, something like this needs a le- either a little bit of oomph mm. in terms of the behaviour. There needs to be like proper skullduggery, murders, sexual shenanigans, or whatever to hold the interest, or there needs to be a big old slappy around the chops twist. And I don't think there was. Having said that, performances are good across the board. Um, I've seen a lot of people perplexed about Luke Wilson's part in this. Stop hating on Luke Wilson, man. He needs to eat. Yeah. Um, you know, he's, on he's, him. It was odd totally rather than you hated on you hated on Luke Wilson. I would never you, hate on Luke Wilson. You hated him. You hate you him. Know, you made his brother Owen cry. He went, oh. wow, and then cried. <laughs> a single tear fell down his cheek. Oh, no. I mean, but someone so ridiculously, really, 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 really ridiculously good looking, making him cry. <laughs> oh, just devastated. So we gave this one three stars. Three stars then for Guest of Honor, which as we always say in the Apra podcast is indeed a recommendation. 
Now, will we be recommending the next film on the list as well, which is... I'm going to throw, throw a bone to Jimbo, a banana-shaped bone to Jimbo. Jimbo, talk about a film called Banana Split. Wake up. <laughs> yes, I could have... This could have gone very badly. And it's like, yeah, I'm going to watch a film called Banana Split. And I just turned on the first film called Banana Split. And then, of course, ended up watching not the Hanna-Barbera Kids TV series, which was my first stop, nor the horror reimagining of such, which came out last year. And let me tell you, that is a riot. Uh, No, this is the film that came out actually a couple of years ago in the States. And this is Banana Split. It explores teenage love, female friendship, and a green-eyed monster. Not... Of course, a literal one, you understand. It's not really that kind of movie, but rather jealousy. So April uh, is the lead in this. She's played by Hannah Marks, who also co-wrote the script. uh, And she strikes up a quite unlikely friendship with a new girl in town, Clara, who's played by the brilliantly named Liana Liberato. Uh, (laughs) They have the same taste. They have the same interests. They soon become best friends. However, Clara is dating Nick, a guy who looks a lot like what would happen if Jesus fucked Skeet Ulrich. Uh, And Nick is April's ex. What's it like Skeet Ulrich? (laughs) Wait. Isn't he, isn't, he, isn't he played by Diane Dylan Sprouse, who's from Riverdale, which also features Ski Ulrich? He is indeed. I didn't know. Oh, Ski Ulrich's in Riverdale. I did not oh, know that. Oh, maybe that's Cole Sprouse. I forget I, the Sprouse's. So Dylan Sprouse isn't as in The Sweet Life of Sack and Cody. Yeah. So Nick, 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 Jesus guy is uh, is April's ex, and he is the guy she's still in love with. So there's a little bit of sexual tension there. Hence this really awkward love triangle that kind of aims to test whether you really can put hoes before bros. So this is, it's kind of a comedic drama, I think more than a romantic comedy, although it kind of varies slightly between the two. Uh, but what really works about this for me is how believable and real the kind of friendship is between the the two leads, like Clara and, and April. Uh, there are tons of fun to spend time with. There's a real mm-hmm. sort of platonic love affair building between them complete with all the ups and downs you kind of expect from that uh, the dialogue's really smartly written it's very authentic it's uh, it's almost painfully millennial to my ears uh, but it's uh, but it's very good it falls down in a few places I think mainly the dinner scenes with April's little sister uh, sort of slinging obscenities and telling each other to suck each other's dicks you know oh, doesn't ring true in the no. same way no. as the uh, as the dialogue elsewhere uh, though it is actually quite funny in places uh, and the film also captures that slightly weird limit that exists I think before finishing school and starting university where life's kind of on hold and you're not really a child you're not really an adult and you don't really know what's going on uh, and so much so that it uses an actual countdown mechanic to kind of count down the days until orientation when they go to college um, so there is a lot to like there and both the female leads are great it doesn't really do anything new or bold that isn't in itself I guess damning I think that, honestly the main problem with this I think it slightly suffers from the fact that everything it does Booksmart does a thousand times better you know right mm. down to this LSD trip sequence that they have uh, halfway through the film uh, and it seems a little maybe unfair to kind of hold it up to Olivia Wilde's film but, but it's also kind of I think hard not to uh, so that said I think if you take Booksmart out of the picture it's actually decent it's a solid film I would give it a you know a, a decently high three stars uh, and then but you know in part because it's only 80 minutes long which immediately makes it a five star classic (laughs) (laughs) we really have to discuss your definitions james but (laughs) (laughs) three star film but five stars for length so we're going to give this one three stars three stars then for banana split best enjoyed of course with a banana split next up we have the county uh amon unleash yourself upon this movie uh yes so this is on curzon home media um and it's by Icelandic filmmaker Grimor Hakonarsson. Apologies. Beautifully uh, done. <laughs> apologies if I'm butchering uh, names here, which is likely going to happen. Um, uh, but it tells the story of Ingo, who's played by, here's one, Anders Igilsdottir. 
um, who, after the death of her dairy farmer, dairy farmer husband, she decides to rebel against the corrupt local co-op that's harming her community. So there's a touch of mm. uh, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri about this. Um, but mm. thankfully, the, the county doesn't share that film's racial issues, which is a good thing. Mm. Um and I love a one man, or in this case, one woman taking on the establishment story. This is definitely one of the more crowd-pleasing ones that I've seen. Uh, it's got a great mm-hmm. performance by Eagles Dotter as, um, as Inga. She just gets better and better as Inga finds her resolve when she's faced with this great tragedy, which is the death of her husband. Uh, and it's a restrained performance, but it's not without power. And as as the film goes on, she just gets more and more fun to watch. And Hakan Arsene has a lot of fun with with the, you know, one woman against the establishment story. There's uh, a lot of threats that uh, she um, is a recipient of. And there comes a time uh, and multiple points in the film where she just does not give a shit and just decides to retaliate. So there's one time when a thug threatens her and she literally takes a shovel of fertilizer and dumps it onto that thug's car. It's amazing to watch. And there's, there's multiple scenes like that. Um, the final shot of this film, I'm not going to get into any details, but it is beautiful. I absolutely love it. It's one of the best final shots I've seen in a long time. Uh, so I, mm. I really enjoyed this one. I'd go four stars on it if I had two of you. Fantastic. Four stars then for the county. And uh, I know we do have an Icelandic listener uh, who, of course, helped us with our pronunciation of Thor or or Tor. Tor? Uh, needs to help me again, clearly, uh, a couple <laughs> weeks ago. So if you have fallen down on your pronunciation there, I know that we will be set right uh, in due course. So thank you in advance for that. Four stars for the county. And we're going to wrap up the review section before I collapse. I've been podcasting for for nearly six solid hours now and I'm very, <laughs> very tired. So um, let's bring this bad boy home, everybody, with Days of the Bagnall Summer, Simon Bird's directorial debut, based on a graphic novel, but that, that doesn't mean there's a snicked or a bamf or a whip <laughs> to be found anywhere. This is much more sedate comedic fare. Hell's Bells. Yeah, so this is the story of Daniel, who's played by Earl Cave, um, who is a sullen bad-tempered, Metallica-loving teen, um, and is all set to spend the summer with his uh, father. His parents are divorced. His father has moved to Florida. So naturally, it is exciting for him. He's about to go and spend six weeks in Florida until dad's new wife calls and says, sorry, he's not welcome anymore. They have a new baby and it's not a good time. So that leaves Daniel with his mother, who's played by Monica Dolan, who is a very sweet, extremely timid librarian who dresses in a lot of beige cardigans. I, I feel like that <laughs> alone should tell you everything you need to know about her. Um, and and they obviously have some issues. He's a very angry, um, estranged, bitter kid. Um, he doesn't want his mum to be nice to him. He, he pokes fun at her all the time. He is very sullen. He's very angry. She is completely unable to meet him on those terms um, because she's so sweet and nice and, and holding back. And you can she's a kind of a, a folded person. You can see her just sort of holding herself in at all times. And, and it's really just a situational thing. It's really the two of them um, trying to get through this summer, trying to find some kind of way to maybe reconnect a little bit um, and trying to find their own way, I guess, in the world because they have extremely different problems, but really um, neither of them is happy as they are. And, and both of them are trying to 
I guess, figure out a, a better way to be. Um, incredible supporting cast. Alice Lowe plays um, mm-hmm. his his aunt. Uh, Rob Bryden is his history teacher who's, who takes his mum on a date, much to his absolute mortification. <laughs> and Tamsin Grieg is um, the mother of Daniel's best friend, and obviously a friend of, of Daniel's mum as a result, but just the most magnificently patronizing woman um, <laughs> that you've ever met. <laughs> What's yeah. great about this, and what I think Simon Bird has done brilliantly, is you know all of these people. All of these people seem real, they seem fleshed out, they seem realistic, they seem like they could live around the corner right now, and if you weren't locked down in your house, you could totally go out and, and talk to them, and this is the stuff they would say if you did. It's still very funny at times, um, mm. it's very sweet at times, but it doesn't feel engineered. I think my major uh, hesitation about it is is just that. It feels like maybe you need a little bit more movie magic in it j- just to draw you in a little bit closer to the characters. And maybe you need Daniel to be not quite so unrelentingly horrible to his mum because you keep wanting him to just like just sit down boy and stop it and and be nice she's trying her best here and you're being awful and i just need you to stop but um there is an age i mean maybe you didn't go through I know this there but is. There, yeah. there's an age i i look i look back i want to go if i had a time machine forget baby hitler i'd go back and slap myself around the chops <laughs> when i was about 14 to 17 God, because i was oh. an absolute prick and of course some people will say i haven't grown out of that phase and touche <laughs> fair enough and that's that's Sorry, with our lives. what was that <laughs> James heard prick and is immediately even, oh, yeah, yeah, so, um, you know and there is there is a time when your parents can't do anything right that, like, that is true yeah you. I, I, I do get that but it, but it does make it hard to root for him at all times as much as I want to the more unlikable he is the harder the film has to work to earn the sweet moments it's going for come the film's end I don't think it quite fully manages that in I just don't think it quite fully gets there. I mean, depression or no depression, father or no father, there's just some things you just don't say. And I know for me watching it, knowing what it's like to grow up in sort of my household, if I said some of the things this kid does, (laughs) I would not be able to sit down for weeks, maybe months. I'd probably be thrown out the house. You know, to get back in the house, the apology would need to be spectacular. And even then, maybe not. And, you know, even, and, and that's another thing, like, the the words, I'm sorry, never crossed Daniel's lips. That did not, it didn't sit right with me. Um, it, it felt like it, there was a couple of scenes that needed in between, no pun intended, that that, that arc to, to make mm. it sort of fully, you know, land for me. It just, you know, as it is, it didn't quite do it. We should also mention that the indie songs by Bell and Sebastian are very cool. Mm, and, yeah. and I enjoyed that too. Really good soundtrack. Lovely soundtrack. It, it felt a little bit, not in terms of production design, but it felt a little bit Wes Anderson-y for me in terms, just in terms of how meticulously composed it is. And, you know, it's it's largely made up of static shots. And that may be a, um, a byproduct of such a low budget and tight shooting schedule or, or whatever. But uh, I thought it was, I thought it was a promising beginning. I, mm. I really liked it, guys. I, I woke up this morning. This is the film I watched at six in the morning and it charmed me. And, uh, and I thought, yeah, Yes, yes, please. More of that, please. Thank you very much indeed. Um, it's it's slight. It's another one of these movies that's 90 odd 90 minutes long. Again, I applaud this. More filmmakers make your films shorter. Thank you very much. <laughs> Especially if I have to watch them six in the morning. Uh, 
um, really replicating the Cannes Film Festival vibe. Um, and I thought good performances. Monica Dolan, who you know people yeah. will know from mainly her work in TV. In terms of film, she was in Alan Partridge's Alpha Papa. But she's a tremendous actress. And mm. uh, yeah, she's so great here. So subtle. Her work with her eyes and her body language is just absolutely terrific. And Earl Cave, who is the son of Nick Cave and looks like it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he looks like Nick Cave's mini-me at times. I thought he's he's also very very good with a character that's very very challenging and and tricksy. Um, and I actually quite like that they didn't try and soften his edges and that he was a bit of a unrepentant prick for quite a bit of it. And it, <laughs> it made me laugh unexpectedly, but also I just found, I just found it very quirky and very very charming and um, mm. and uh, and good stuff, good stuff indeed. Uh, so so this one we gave three stars. Uh, promising directorial debut from Mr. Simon Bird. Three stars then for Days of the Bagnell Summer. Uh, and very, very quickly, I just wanted to point out that there are some really, really cool films coming to movie or have been on movie over the last week or so. Uh, Animal Crackers is on there. So if you've mm. never really delved into the Marx Brothers, I should have mailed it to the Marx Brothers. Then you can check out Animal Crackers and Duck Soup is going to be added in the next couple of days, I think as well. Mm. La Dolce Fita, uh, Federico Fellini's La Dolce Fita is on there as well. Uh, the Black Power mixtape, 1967 to 1975, which is a documentary uh, that has just been added to that as well. And Gaspar Noe's Porn-tastic love is has just been added to movie, or should I say, booby, uh, and that is now on there. So if you want, you can watch it where it should be seen in the comfort and privacy of your own home, rather than at a press screening with thirty sweaty bloke film journalists wondering desperately if they all have boners in three D. Yes. <laughs> and at like nine o'clock in the morning, you don't want that. <laughs> So anyway, those films are on movie for your delectation and delight. And that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. We made it. We made it. You have no idea the shit we went through to get you this week's podcast. But here we are. We are at the end. Uh, join us next week for more film-related fun. You know, whenever I said that there was going to be a real lack of guests in the lockdown and we were going to struggle to get guests every week. Uh, as things stand, we have four of the buggers for next week's show. Uh, so I don't know what the hell we're going to do. I don't know what we're going to do. We have Can you Chud- ask them for facts so we don't have to do it. <laughs> That's a great idea. Yes. That's a great idea. We might make it a two-parter. We might break some of the interviews off into their own specials. I don't know what the fuck we're going to do. So honestly, if you have any ideas for what I could do with this incredible quartet of people, not all the interviews have happened yet, so some people might drop out. But if you have any ideas for how you want these to be presented, please keep them clean and um, send them in to me and we'll see what we can do. But join us next week for more film-related fun where we should be joined by All Being Well, Judd Apatow, director of The King of Staten Island. That's worthy of a woo. Woo! Fuck me. Um, we will be joined by Delroy Lindo, star of Spike Lee's new joint, The Five Bloods. Amazing. <laughs> you said you didn't want to woo. We're trying to mix it up. I'm trying to switch it up. What am I going to say? We'll be joined by Richard Armitage, who has an audio thing to plug. Hey. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's Thorin Oakenshield. We'll be, and we'll be joined by Rosamund Pike, star of Radioactive. Cool. Nice one. That's good. That's a good quartet, isn't it? That's, you know, I wonder if they could do barbershop songs. That'd be brilliant. Uh, <laughs> there we go. So join us next week for that. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> Until then. <laughs> 
broadcasting my breakdown in real time, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, join us for that. Uh, until then, it is goodbye from <laughs> it is goodbye from anonymous Amon Warman. Peace. Peace to you, sir. It is goodbye from at Boyega for Eva. <laughs> <laughs> Who's Eva and why is Boyega fans of her? Oh, she's French. She's French. Okay. Boyega mm. forever um, uh, is Helen O'Hara. Goodbye, my Coney Island baby. I mean, you just mentioned Barbara. <laughs> 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 I contribute to your breakdown. <laughs> what's, what's happening? What's happening? It's goodbye to Thanos for president, aka oh, James Dyer. It is inevitable. <laughs> you are inevitable. Every week, there you are. Four o'clock on a Thursday afternoon. There you are. You are inevitable. Anyway, and it's goodbye from me. I couldn't think of a movie character to, you know, run a little squad cast. <laughs> We pick a squadcast name and I'm so frazzled. I've literally been doing this for nearly six hours. I'm so frazzled when I began this podcast, let alone now, that I couldn't think of a film character. So I just wrote Jeff Montague. So it's goodbye from me, Jeff Montague. And now I'm off to lie down for a very long time. And if I can think of anything witty to say at the end of this, then I will add it in later on. And you won't even be able to tell the difference. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week. Bye-bye.